I have to give a disclaimer of sorts. Because I'm speaking about money this morning. And if this is your first time here, I can only imagine what could be going through your head right now, having just said that. Please understand that this is the third time in 24 years that I have spent any length of time more than a fleeting sidebar comment on a particular message or something in the whole time that I've been here. We don't pound on money. We don't harp on money. We're certainly not a prosperity church. Nothing of that stripe. It just happened to be my plan established many months ago to do this. And again, if it's your first time, I don't make apologies for it. But just by way of explanation, because I know first impressions are important. Um, the very reason we have our offering boxes even mounted on the back was that very shortly after I came here, uh, being very sensitive to the whole uh, privacy, if you will, according to 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, which I'll be talking about later on, um, you know, giving is to be a thing between you and the Lord. And so we stopped doing the passing the plate down the aisle and all that like it's done in a lot of churches. So just hear that. Take it in the spirit that it's intended. I want to start this morning with a real live testimonial from an individual who wrote me after I did this subject matter in 2007, which was the last time I did it, I think. It might have been 2008. A while back, you asked those of us who benefited from your material malignancy. That's what I called the series. And by the way, I found out the first service. It is still online. And it is nine messages. It's more intricate than what you're going to hear to this week and last week. And I just started on it previous week as we wrapped up the book of Philippians. So if you have any interest in that and hearing more detail and all, nine message uh, package. And it is still up on our website. It's funny how a person can absolutely know something is right or wrong and still rationalize doing the wrong thing sometimes for a long time. Having been raised in a Christian family and taught to tithe at a very young age, I knew it was the right thing to do, but at some point along the way I chose to stop. If you don't know what tithing is, tithing is the uh, discipline, if you will, the privilege and pleasure, and I mean that sincerely, and you'll see why in a little bit, or if you've read my book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, you clearly see why, that it is a blessing. It's good. It is giving the idea of giving 10% of your income to the work of the Lord. I began tithing again and have been blessed beyond belief. No, my bills haven't been miraculously paid, nor have I received mysterious checks in the mail. But what I have received is a joy in my heart that can only come from the Lord. It has replaced a heaviness that had been there. I think that when Satan robs someone of joy, in this case by convincing me I didn't need to tithe for a while, he doesn't just leave an empty space, he fills it with something evil. But let me get back to the joy. I now feel so much a part of everything that is accomplished in and through the people of faith. I can truly rejoice in every missionary supported, every hungry mouth fed, every discouraged person lifted up, and every soul saved. Tithing has made the difference of saying I was a member of the body of Christ and actually being a member of the body of Christ. And I don't ever want to go back. The joy is too real 
Anyone who doubts it should put God to the test. He will fill you with joy unspeakable. I assure you, I did not write that, nor did Barbara. I want to just give a brief recap of where we were last week as we were winding down the book of Philippians. And again, just because of the textual um, place that we were at in the book, it made a very nice transition into this coming subject matter for the next two weeks. And then, of course, we're in Easter Sunday. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. So by way of recap of last week's message, point number one, contentment or the lack thereof is a huge issue for people from every level of the social strata, especially those, ironically, who live in a land of plenty. Number two, Paul says that he has learned the secret of contentment, which seems to imply that contentment is not a natural response for us. Now, hopefully, you're on that other discipline that I encourage strongly, and that's reading through your Bibles um, annually. And as you're reading through the Bible, if you've been through the book of Exodus, or you can remember Exodus, or the book of Numbers, you have to be, at least I was, and continue to be, though it's tempered, being amazed in kind of a negative way at the thick-headedness of God's people. Because here are God's children just having been marvelously and astoundingly, miraculously delivered from 400 years of bondage and slavery to Egypt. And yet they are no sooner delivered and they already start the crabbing, the whining, and the complaining about what they don't have. And it would have been better to be back in Egypt where we had leeks and garlic. And, oh, here we are out in the wilderness. You brought us out here to die. And I used to read, I remember the, probably one of the first times, maybe the first time I read that. I remember clacking my tongue. <laughs> really? <laughs> and then I matured a little bit. Looked in the mirror a little more often. I advise you not to click your tongue, at least not so loud when anybody's around thinking about all that. The point is, is that discontentment seems to be the de default position of mankind. Meaning, again, we are just normally, because of our black hearts and our tainted hearts by sin, we normally tend toward discontentment, and we have to get ourselves out of discontentment in order to be contented. It's not the other way around. And it is the reason that the average household credit card debt in America is $9,760. That's just credit card debt. That's not a mortgage. That's not car payments. That's not school loans or any other kind of loans that you can take out for whatever toys you find necessary to life. Why is household debt so high? Well, with rare exception, and there are a couple, but they are rare. Lack of contentment, Paul says, is the reason. There is a reason that we are discontent, 
and it's because it seems to be our default position. But Paul says there's a secret to contentment. And that secret is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So contentment is a supernatural enablement. Remember, it's not natural. Contentment is a supernatural enablement through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So there you go. That kind of wraps up, sums up the message from Philippians. This chronic lack of contentment is precisely why consumer debt is what it is and is such a ball and chain that robs us of joy. And it's one reason, just one, there are numerous, but it's one reason and a big one that Christians either do not give to the work of the Lord or do not give appropriately to the work of the Lord on earth. According to George Barna, and this statistic is somewhat dated, but it was the most recent that I could find, I suspect if anything it's lower than what I'm going to tell you. But according to Barna Research, of those who describe themselves as born-again Christians, 3.2% of born-again Christian population actually observes the tithe. Well, a second reason that God's people do not give more to his work on earth is simply a lack of belief or a lack of understanding of God's wisdom for all things pertaining to life and godliness on this particular issue. As new Christians, going back to 1974, I was in the army, Barbara was my wife, and we were, like I say, brand spanking new Christians, very young, very immature in the knowledge and wisdom of God. But we were becoming involved with a parachurch organization on post at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, known as the Navigators. And we were invited by one of the NAV staff to attend this Saturday conference they were having in the area. And we went, and we were sitting right close up front, as I recall. And the man who was doing the speaking said something that just really caught my attention. And what he said was, if you want to get out of debt, increase your giving. And the reason that caught my attention was not because we were in debt, because we weren't. It was because it seemed such an utterly illogical statement to make. And so he had my attention. But I have to say that as we were sitting there, the speaker laid out some principles from the Word of God concerning this idea of tithing on your income. And it seemed biblically quite reasonable, and it wasn't presented in a, a, a you know a heavy-handed, guilt-producing kind of way. And I think that it was from that time forward that Barb and I began tithing on our gross income. And again, being a buck sergeant in the United States Army in 1974, our gross income was pretty gross. We didn't go about paying our tithe after everything else was paid. We paid for it first because we believed that if done with a proper spirit, which I'm going to talk about a little bit, if we were seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, a la Matthew 6.33, then the Lord would take care of our needs not our wants, our desires, our whims, our dreams, or our wishes, but that God committed himself to taking care of our needs. Well, we got out of the army, and there was a very brief stint just out of the army when we were blessed with qualifying for food stamps. 
it is one reason why I really appreciate our governor's uh, stand when he says concerning welfare that he sees it as a hand up and not a handout, because that's exactly what it was in our case. But even then, we were tithing on our income. And while we probably still qualified for food stamps, we no longer needed them, and our needs were met. And I believe that we were on food stamps less than a year. I think it was closer to eight months. Well, for the first eight years of our marriage or so, because of pursuing differing various degrees and all of that sort of stuff, we were living on a shoestring financially. And then we had a very short reprieve of two and a half years when I landed this very uh, bizarrely positioned uh, place at a hospital as an assistant administrator. But that quickly ended and ended up in seminary when we were once again living at or below the poverty level and still every step of the way tithing on our meager incomes. We also at this time also still had no debt. Well, as we grew in maturity, both in the knowledge of the word and in our experiences with the Lord and his, his phenomenal provision for us, and in our conviction as we experienced both of those things, we started tithing on gifts also. So when we would receive a monetary gift, $50 check from somebody for my birthday, $5 at least went to our tithe and was added to our tithe. Now, that was not something that we did, thinking that it was, you know, the law of God. But even though we were immature, we were maturing in our thinking. And what made the difference was the poignant realization that Jesus did not give just 10% of his life for our redemption. He gave it all. And so thinking back to Paul's words, again, to the Philippians in chapter 2, remember he says to the Philippian believers, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That is the attitude that we are to have. In other words, Jesus gave it all. And so by rights... 100% of everything we have truly is his. And so for us, 10% was our starting point, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But we also had to be open for however the Holy Spirit might move us beyond the 10% figure, which we practice to this day. And now to bring up another verse that we looked at last week from the Apostle Paul, chapter 4, verse 9. He said, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In that spirit, I let you know today that our 2014 giving, as I'm doing our taxes right now, is just at $12,000. And I share that with you by way of example and modeling, and I assure you that is considerably more than 10% of our gross income. Don't do as I say, do as I do. Good paraphrase of Philippians 4.9. And the reason that we were able to do this again was because we truly believed that all of it was God's. 
And as we stepped out on faith, we saw God just answering in ways that totally blew our preconceived ideas or even our needs away so many times providing for for whims and wishes that he did not have to. Well, this idea of 10% being our starting point and then going beyond that as the Holy Spirit moves us, I believe was one of the salient points that Gary Hogue, who was with us last August, you might remember called the Generosity Monk, that's the name of his website and his organization and all, he was with us, and he, uh, in fact, insisted that giving on the part of God's people is not about a percentage, but it's about giving with grateful hearts, acknowledging everything we have as the Lord's, and that God is truly the one who provides. And to that, I give an absolute hearty amen. However, comma, I do not share Gary's conviction that he shared with us last August that the Old Testament tithe is no longer relevant or even incumbent upon the New Testament Christian. And that is now where we are headed for the rest of the morning. I mentioned last week that some Christians who do not believe that the tithe is still in effect today do so primarily on the basis that the tithe, by virtue of it being in the Old Testament and being part of the Old Testament system of law, law, was rendered satisfied when Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Indeed, we're told that in uh, Matthew 5 and again in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus himself said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And because Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament system of rules and regulations on our behalf, they are no longer a burden for New Testament Christians. Well, obviously, that being said, We still don't, I mean, we don't observe all the dietary laws of the Old Testament because we know that those are no longer incumbent upon us. Nevertheless, or I should say, because of that, I grilled a big fat pork chop last week. But even with that being said, we know that conventional wisdom says eating an overabundance of pig, which was one of the forbidden animals to eat, is not healthy. It's not going to serve you well. So it's like, hmm, okay, we're not, that's not like a sword over our head that we can't do that and violate some ritual, but there it is. There's still benefit in doing so. We don't take unruly children who have dishonored their parents outside and stone them. We may think about it, but we don't do it. We don't still offer up burnt offerings, at least not intentionally. And there are many more things like this that we no longer count as obligatory in a New Testament system of grace. And so, understanding that, I agree that on first blush, it might seem very consistent that the Old Testament pattern of tithing is no longer incumbent on New Testament people of faith. But, even though we are not commanded to obey many of the Old Testament laws, can't it be said that there are still blessings which may follow obeying some of them voluntarily, so to speak. Many of the laws, for example, concerning cleanliness, they're not mandatory anymore for mankind like they were. But even today, the consequences of defying them can mean the spread of numerous hideous diseases. 
Now, this is not all that appreciated in our country, but you go to a third world country, and this is particularly observable where clean water and disinfectants are in short supply. We look at the Old Testament system of justice where there was a differentiation of offense distinguished between those demanding restitution versus incarceration versus elimination, meaning execution or capital punishment. But that is still a credible model of justice today. In fact, the late, great Charles Colson, who started prison fellowship later in his lifetime, developed what he called Justice Fellowship. And he was working with jails that would let him to take nonviolent offenders who were behind bars, who were there, for example, because of property crimes, you know, theft or, uh, you know, whatever you can think of in the area of property. And so they were jailing them. And, of course, when they're in jail and afterward, you know, they can't work, they can't earn any money. And so the individual who was wronged by virtue of losing their property, they went without. According to the Old Testament, that's not the way it worked. An individual who defrauded you in some way, they had to pay you. They had to reimburse you. They had to make up for it. So they started taking these nonviolent offenders out of jail and making them work and giving the money to the people that they violated. There was benefit. There is benefit, you see, in still observing things of the Old Testament that may not be mandatory. But I want to tell you that that first point of mine is not a dynamic one, I admit. Just because something has Old Testament roots shouldn't necessarily preclude its being observed by a people of faith. But, again, this point is the weakest point that you are going to hear. This next point is not. Eliminating the tithe, treating it as one of the many Old Testament laws, is troubling because the tithe did not originate in the Old Testament law. The tithe did not originate in Old Testament law. I want to take us all the way back to the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14, we meet that enigmatic individual by the name of Melchizedek. And this is what we read, verses 18 through 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave him a tenth of all. The first recorded example of the tithe. Genesis 28, 14 chapters later, is the second time we hear about a tithe, and it has to do with Jacob, who is now at Bethel, and this is the place in his life where he falls asleep, and he has a vision, and he has this vision of the ladder that was extending up into heaven, and he sees angelic hosts going up and down the ladder to set that up. Here's what we read in Genesis 14. Behold, the Lord stood above it, the ladder, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you, 
and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And now what follows in the rest of this pericope is Jacob's response to this overwhelming encounter with the living God, a response that can be called nothing less than worship. Continuing, So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, he already said he would, and he will keep me on this journey, he already said he would. And will give me food to eat and garments to wear. He already said he would. And I return to my father's house in safety. He already said he would. (laughs) Then the Lord will be my God. Now, if you read this the wrong way, you could read that as, so, he's kind of getting a little high and mighty having this vision. He's saying, okay, God, you know what? I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to let you be my God if you do this, 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 and this. And he lists those four things, which God had already said he was going to do. But that's the wrong way to read it, given the context. He is rehearsing what God has already stated he will do, meaning, and you, being God Almighty, when you do these things, will be acting like the God that I have known that you are. Abram and Jacob both lived three centuries before the law was ever given to Moses. So where did Abram's compulsion compulsion to give a tenth to Melchizedek come from? Where did Jacob's compulsion to give a tenth of all he had to the Lord some 300 years before the giving of the law come from? These are important considerations. First, I have long contended, and again, I want to make sure you understand that there are very good, solid Biblical preachers who love the Lord absolutely, who do not agree with my assessment of who Melchizedek is. All right? As far as I am concerned, I have always seen Melchizedek in Genesis 14 as a theophany, meaning he is not just a human being. He is, in fact, a material, visible manifestation of God. We see them throughout the Old Testament, called either by way of theophanies, a vision of God, or Christophanies, where it's a vision of Jesus pre-incarnate himself. We've talked about many of those in the past as I've gone through teaching various Old Testament works. But I am convinced that Hebrews 7 in the New Testament, looking back to this person Melchizedek, affirms that Melchizedek was none other and nothing less than a visible manifestation of God Almighty. Here's what we read in Hebrews 7, chapter uh, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, Melchi, king, Hebrew, Tzedok, the root for righteous, 
he, by virtue of the translation of his name, is the king of righteousness. And then also he is called Shalom, Sar, Sar Shalom, the king of Salem, the king of peace. He is, now listen to this, he is without mother. He is without father. He is without genealogy. Now, those three together are important because people will say, well, it's just a matter of speech that, you know, without father, without mother, he was just an old guy, whatever. You do not understand the Hebrew culture. The genealogy, the written registration of your connection to your family, your lineage before and then on after you, was your veritable proof that you, in fact, ever existed. That is why they were meticulous about keeping their genealogical records, because to lose your record was to lose your existence. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What? It sounds to me like we're talking about eternity, which means Melchizedek always was. He had no beginning. He has no end. That can only be one individual. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually, eternally. Nobody can remain a priest perpetually. The rest of the scriptures make that clear, except one. God the Son. Now observe, the writer of Hebrews says, how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Abraham was the numero uno and still is the numero uno head kahuna, the big cheese concerning Judaism. And he is seen as the father, the progenitor of the whole Jewish faith and system of ritual and everything else. I mean, there is nobody bigger than him. And yet he was tithing to Melchizedek. He wasn't just an ordinary human being. And those, indeed, of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. No, Abraham is the one who does the subsequent blessing. He is the patriarch, but Melchizedek blessed him. I don't see how you can come up with anyone but God Almighty. So when Abraham has this encounter with Melchizedek, it seems he cannot not give a tithe to this amazing manifestation of God. But Genesis 14 gets even weightier. The writer of Hebrews continues explaining in our passage in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 9, he says, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, what's the significance of this? Levi, the 
progenitor of the tribe of Levi, from whom the Levitical priesthood would come. The only legitimate priest could come from the tribe of Levi. Levi was the recipient of the tithes later on under the Levitical priesthood because the Levites were the only tribe of all the 12 tribes of Israel that were not given an inheritance by God of land, meaning a way of sustaining themselves, a way of earning a living. The Levites were to earn their living, so to speak, through the priesthood, and that's why the people were commanded to bring in the tithes in, in order to provide for them since they didn't have an inheritance like the rest. That was God's provision for Levi and for the Levites that follow for their livelihood. And so the point of Hebrews 7 is that even before God had codified the tithe as a law for the sake of the Levites in Leviticus 27, Abram's tithe was a response of worship to the living, loving creator. And when Jacob was struck by the awesome faithfulness in this encounter of Jehovah, His response is a compulsion to express his trust and his gratitude for God's faithfulness with the worship of the tithe. The tithe just seems to have always been there in a sense, seeing as how when Abram and Jacob gave their tithes, it predated the law that God had given. Now, this idea just seems a little unsatisfying. Remember that when we come to the differences in the offerings as early as Genesis 4, remember between Cain and Abel, and God regarded Abel's offering but did not regard Cain's offering. They just, off the idea of offerings and that there's differences between the offerings and whatever and such that God would accept one and not the other. Where'd that come from? We just read they brought forth offerings. Hmm. It just seems like Some things in the Bible just go without saying. And three centuries later, when the law is finally given to Moses, there's still nothing in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, about tithing. Taking these together seems to invalidate the argument that the tithe is to be treated like the rest of Old Testament law in an age of grace. Number three, another reason sometimes given that the tithe is passé is saying that Jesus never mentioned a tithe. And that's true. Let me give you a real heads up here, though. Do not ever resort to that kind of an argument for anything. Well, Jesus never said anything about. Jesus never said anything about. Jesus never said, that's right, you don't ever want to use that because Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Jesus never said anything about abortion. Jesus never said anything about transgenderism. Jesus never said anything about in vitro fertilization. I mean, you see, you can go on and on. But remember, it's not just the words of Jesus that are inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture. Some contend that teaching the tithe is actually a great hindrance to giving. So, does the teaching of the tithe hinder giving? It could. It could. 
I can certainly see how the potential for the tithe to be discouraging is if the tithe is taught kind of as an Old Testament whip. You understand? But I will contend that the tithe properly taught is life-enhancing and joy-generating, stimulating giving as an act of worship. Remember the words of the person in my opening testimony. What I have received is a joy in my heart that can only come from the Lord. It has replaced a heaviness that had been there. And I believe, now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sensitive to this, that I think the concern that by those who shun the teaching of the tithe as God's best is because they see that it, it you know, having it as kind of as a mandatory thing, as a starting point, it violates the spirit of Second Corinthians 9 that I mentioned at the outset of all of this, where Paul writes that God doesn't want anyone to give with an attitude of reluctance or to give under compulsion. But the context of the rest of that passage is all very positive. It's even celebratory. It's not a negative kind of thing. So let's look at that for a minute. First, Second Corinthians 9.1 to give the setup to the context in which the verse we're talking about uh, is found. Paul says, it is superfluous for me to write, meaning it's needless for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Zeal for what? Paul's talking about zeal for the monetary contribution that they took up to give and send with Paul to the work of the Lord. But then Paul being Paul, you've got to love this guy. In verses 2 through 5, either Paul had some inside information or he just knew the heart of man when it comes to parting with our money. And so in this next pericope, Paul's encouraging them not to get cold feet concerning their promised contribution that they had been planning and collecting for the past year. He writes in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 9, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. He heard they had a bountiful gift waiting, and he was kind of for some reason warning, you know, I really don't want to show up there and find out that you put two drachmas for your year's offering for me to take on to the saints. I've been boasting about you, telling them that you've got this amazing offering for me. His inspired choice of words here are noteworthy because he uses the word covetousness. What is covetousness? Covetousness is wanting that which is not rightly yours. So let me hopefully keep your head in this. Paul says paraphrasing. You guys have been jumping at the chance to give to the work of the Lord for this past year, and you're so excited that it's unnecessary for me to even mention it. But it's been a year since you've been waiting, and though it's unnecessary for me to mention it, I'm mentioning it. Don't get cold feet now. Don't become covetous and take back that which is rightly the Lord's and not yours. 
wanting to keep what belongs to the Lord. Now maybe Paul thinks to himself after writing that, it is inspired, that it sounded a bit too harsh than what he really intended. Then I'm just speculating here, so you can throw that out the window, but perhaps. And so he says, so I want to qualify that with my next uh, couple of verses now that follow. He says, let me encourage you in this way. Here's what I'm going to say to you guys. This is another way of looking at the whole idea of giving and giving bountifully. He who sows sparingly, we're now talking about a divine principle. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And remember that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He's encouraging them with the idea here of the tithe. And he just doesn't want them to back up on what they did that was right, and they knew it was right. And so this idea that the tithe is no longer in effect, how do you balance that with 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8? Because God still loves a cheerful giver. God really doesn't want somebody giving with the wrong attitude, with the wrong heart. Because as I said last week, he doesn't need anything from us to accomplish his purposes. And the last thing that he would want is for somebody to leave this auditorium today going out, man, I hate it when people talk about money and church talking about money. I just, I feel like Okay, I'll write the stinging check. God says, hey, man, keep it. Really, you're not doing me any favors. I don't want it. Neither does he want what the prosperity fold are so noted for. Friends, if you just come forth and you dig deep and you bring that seed money to the Lord, I'm telling you, based on the word of God, that he promises to to increase what you bring in for his work sacrificially. What you bring in with joyful giving, and he will give you ten times what you bring forth. He will give it to you packed down, pressed down, shaved, compressed, and condensed, and you're never going to miss what you brought forth. And See, there's scripture laced all through that. And so the individual comes with the attitude of, this sounds like a pretty good financial arrangement. If I give 10 bucks, God's promised to give me 100 back, maybe even 1,000 back. Okay, woo, and that's what the prosperity gospel really comes down to. It's that whole thing. And God says, if, that's, if, you're, if you in any way, shape, or form are, are, are bringing your tithe, your offering to me for my work, thinking that because you're doing so, you've now got my arm behind my back, and, oh, okay, what do you want? Give me your list. He says, take your money and may it perish with you. My motivation for writing the the proper pursuit of prosperity was one, an apologetic against the prosperity gospel, which is rampant worldwide today. And two, because Barbara and I, from 1974 onward, have in so many real ways 
have lived in faithful trust of the Lord and his provision. And that book, again, that book is just filled with the stories of God's faithfulness to us. One of the most profound that I remember is the one about the drinking glasses. A little bitty provision of God. In the grand scheme of the universe and things, something nobody would mention. But it made me understand that God is not only important about the huge, big things and the big needs and the big miracles. He's also concerned about the minute little things in our lives. And because he's a loving father, he likes giving us gifts. Those drinking glasses that I didn't know, Barb had been praying for. We just moved to Atlanta, didn't have much of anything. We didn't need those. And a perfect stranger from next door in the apartment complex comes over and brings them, brings us a housewarming gift to welcome us to the neighborhood. Huh, a set of six Libby drinking glasses. And it was just another mark, if you will, in the stories of the faithfulness of God. Saying, trust me, you can trust me. We're going to hear a lot more about that next week as we look at Haggai chapter 1 and Malachi 3 will be the two salient verses. If you want to look ahead, you can look ahead and read those. Malachi chapter 3, Haggai chapter 1. I don't want this to be a burden unless it's the Holy Spirit that's burdening you. I want you to find the honest-to-goodness joy, one of actually being able to give and give bountifully to somebody, to the work of the Lord, I'm saying. And I want you to marvel at the sheer miraculous nature of this God whom we serve, who is still doing miracles today like he did in the Old Testament. I want you to enter in to the fullness of that. And many Christians are being robbed. And you will also see next week or hear next week, there is a cause and effect to this whole idea about bringing forth the tithe with the right attitude and the right heart to the Lord God Almighty. Let me have you stand. Thank you, uh, Lord, for Bill bringing us, uh, his diligent in bringing us your word today, Lord. Your word is life, and life more abundant, Lord. And I would pray that uh, if you're struggling uh, today, that you would consider God's word in applying it to your, to your life. And uh, I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.